Welcome to Distressed Situations, a Reed Smith podcast. On this podcast, we cover current issues in financial restructuring over a wide variety of industries. I'm Keith Arzeda, a partner in Reed Smith's Global Restructuring and Insolvency Group, and I'm one of the hosts of this podcast. Whether your company is a financial institution or in industry, we hope our commentary will be useful in managing the risks associated with distress. If you have any questions about our topics, feel free to contact our speakers. Welcome to the latest episode of Distressed Situations. I'm Keith Arzeda. I am very excited about our episode today. We have Mike Musso, who is a managing director of KPMG, and he is going to talk to us today about distress and the state of the industry in the beauty and retail space. Mike is an absolute expert in this area, and if you want to see an impressive resume, as it relates to the beauty and retail industry, I dare you to look at his LinkedIn profile. He has spent his career in this space, and we are very fortunate to have Mike on today's program. Mike, maybe you give a little background on your career and experience. I've directed people to your LinkedIn page, which speaks for itself, but maybe you give a little summary. Good morning, Keith. Hey, thanks for having me today, and I appreciate you being the head of my PR club. I, I've spent my entire career from uh, actually youth in the consumer products industry. As I grew up in the grocery industry in a family-owned business in Birmingham, Alabama. And then, as fate would have it, went to work for Procter & Gamble right out of college and spent 15 years at Procter & Gamble, Pepsi, and Frito, where I really learned the operations, distribution, and retailer management and consumer packaged goods. I was fortunate to have the opportunity to spend another dozen years in private equity as a serial CEO, where I got quickly introduced to the beauty care industry and running a couple of companies in that space. And then back in the glory days of restructuring in 2007, I was able to become a turnaround consultant for a number of firms, where I then had a tremendous opportunity to run a number of beauty care companies in distress and actually became interim CEO and CRO of a few of those. So been with KPMG for the past uh, year where I've been leading the consumer retail restructuring group and excited to talk about the beauty care industry today and all the changes and dynamics that are happening. It's awesome. Thanks, Mike. I definitely want to be number one in your fan club. So when you get that started, let me know so I can sign up. So for those of you listening, what we're going to talk about today is, uh, as Mike discussed, uh, the state of and distressed issues in the beauty and retail space. And you can see Mike is an expert in that. Mike, one thing that we like to do before we get started is to have a little discussion of what do you like to do for fun? I will tell you, if I could do any two things outside of working for KPMG, and hopefully my boss will be listening to this, I am an avid bass fisherman. Just rewarded myself for absolutely nothing with the new bass boat a few weeks ago. For those bass fishermen out there, it's a Camus 20. I highly love it. So go out and buy yourself one. And the second thing is I'm a photographer. And if I was very good at it, I'd try to make money at it. But uh, those are the two things that I absolutely enjoy. And I also have a number of pets. My wife and my son run uh, a family business, which is a doggy daycare, a Dogtopia franchise. So that occupies my time on that extra day a week I have available to myself. Well, I have to tell you, I zeroed in right away on that bass fishing. I used to run a Ranger 520, so I am familiar with your boat. One quick question, are you running a two-stroke or a four-stroke motor? 
four stroke uh, Yamaha two fifty. We need a whole podcast on the bass industry. So basically, you're driving a rocket ship. That's awesome. <laughs> it's a lot of fun. All right, so let's get down to business. What I'd like to start out with is have you describe for the listeners what you consider the beauty care industry to be. Let's get some guardrails on what we're talking about and then maybe describe what you see the current trends in this area to be, especially as it relates to distress. Sure. I mean, the beauty care industry is it's so large. It's also an, an incredibly global business. You know, it's reaching about $500 billion in uh, turnover. And when you start thinking about that category, it, it just really spans everything from over-the-counter skincare products like Neutrogena and Oil of Olay, all the way to the highest quality premium products, you know, that retail for over $500 an ounce. So it spans all the normal brands you know, the Procter & Gamble brands, the Oil of Olay's, the Cody's, the L'Oreal's, Estee Lauder. But what's really happened to the industry, especially over the last decade, is it has become incredibly fragmented. It's the one industry that I'm exposed to that a small brand with really great innovation can be incredibly successful on its own. It's a highly loyal category. Consumers tend to stay with their own regimens of their own brands in this industry to a great degree. But I will tell you, with innovation, there's been a, just a high degree of, of consumers te- trying and testing new products. And the whole anti-aging craze and clean beauty and all the trends we're going to talk about here shortly are really driving the opportunity for a number of smaller brands to grow. So it's an exciting category. It's ever-changing. It's probably the model for innovation in the consumer packaged goods inventory. So I, I'm, I'm pretty excited about this industry in this category. Although, no question, there's been a few bumps in the road since COVID hit. All right. So before we talk about those bumps in the road, I, I, something did occur to me while you were talking. When you say the word beauty industry, I think the temptation for a lot of us is to think, this is only a female-driven industry. Do you see it that way, or do you see the, the men's product as a, an opportunity in a growing sector? Absolutely, you hit the nail on the head. It, it's, it's been funny to think about it, uh, because with all the companies that I've been able to be associated with, both large and small, one of the things that has become very clear to me is men have flocked to the industry, especially in the anti-aging. One of the critical trends, and I'll go ahead and, and, and talk about that now, is inclusive. You're going to hear more about inclusive as a byproduct of what's happened since COVID. There's the obvious new demographic markets, gender neutral products, products that are, that are geared towards specific ethnicity. But if you want to talk about men's grooming, it's gone crazy. It's expanded well beyond face washing and moisturizers. Men are flocking to eye creams today, face masks, daily sunscreen products. They've all taken off. And and what's really happened here is direct-to-consumer brands are really going after the men's lines. Companies like Bevel, Lumen, Euron, Hawthorne, which none of these are 
top of mind brands, they all reported growth in 2020. And think about that. They reported growth in an economy that tanked for over eight months. So when you think about the momentum that men's brands has, it has been incredible in terms of the growth. One key element here, though, is if you look globally, the countries that are leading in men's grooming products and men's beauty care products are ironically China and Korea. And those, those two markets have exploded with percentages you can't even calculate in, in terms of growth. A lot of that, to be honest with you, Keith, is driven by the fact that the new work environment is all about Zooms and Teams. And as people are on camera, you can see yourself in a mirror a lot more every day than you used to. Yeah, well, I got to say, I know this is an audio only podcast, but Mike, you look great. I think your skin tone is wonderful. <laughs> well, I do know my colors from having run a color cosmetic company. All right. <laughs> All right. Let's talk a little bit about the impact of COVID and some other disruptors. I think you mentioned you mentioned COVID. And I think the other disruptor that I'd like to hear your thoughts on are direct to consumer. I think we're in a day and age where many of the products that we're talking about here in the beauty industry, people are getting direct in the mail rather than having to go to the cosmetic counter or to the big box shopping center. Am I right about that? You're, you're absolutely correct. You know, it's interesting. Prior to COVID hitting, 85% of all of the beauty care products were purchased in brick and mortar retail. Start to think about that really surprised me as I looked at that number because you would have thought with the impact of Amazon, with, you know, all the brands going direct, that that number would have been far smaller. But people like to touch feel and try products. And, you know, retailers like Sephora always provided their consumers the opportunity to do that. The problem is once COVID hit, you now have this whole concern with, you know, cleanliness, transmittability of disease, things like that. So the whole environment had to change. But the real underlying issue was not so much that. It was really, at the end of the day, COVID changed the way people live. It changed the way people worked. And therefore, the daily regimens that people went through had to change significantly. You know, beauty care products prior to COVID were part of a daily routine for most women. They commuted to offices. They had skincare regimens. Even men had in, you know, increasing popularity in those, but it was limited. That all changed when Zooms and Teams became the new workplace. Uh, color cosmetics became non-essential. Lipstick was the only color cosmetic that really showed any growth in 2020. And as people settled in their new life, skincare, making your skin look younger, that all took center stage. Now that COVID has settled down, we've seen a real change, though. The industry's turned back to growth. You got vloggers and influencers there that are quickly becoming as important as retail in promoting new product. DTC brands have accelerated. When you think about direct-to-consumer, these vloggers and these influencers have enabled Instagram shopping and Pinterest pins to study about a product, listen to an influencer on Instagram, and immediately press click to buy. So now you've got the whole commercial and the whole shopping experience all embedded in one two-minute segment. And so consumers are much more willing to place their trust in a brand they haven't used 
because of these type of influencers. That's enabled innovators to come out, put together new products, to incubate new products, and to get them into the market very quickly. DTC is not only for those small brands either. All the big brands are going direct to consumer now also. So I think, I think this, maybe let's take a real quickly and without making it too much of a frolic and detour, I'm planning to come out with my own skin line in my hypothetical question here. How does that differ today than it did 20 years ago? And I can imagine that right now today, I'm going to influencers, vloggers, trying to get their buy-in or paying them to help advertise my product. Whereas 20 years ago, I'm trying to figure out how to get my product at the Neiman's counter in a very brick and mortar type of way. Yeah, I mean, that's exactly right. You just hit the nail on the head. 20 years ago, you're buying shelf space. And that is a very, very expensive entree into the category. Small brands, one of which I ran, which was Love Life Cosmetics, which was made for cancer patients, it was very, very expensive in the millions of dollars to launch. And if you think about Bloomingdale's in the center of New York City, to even get an entree onto their shelves, you're looking at a seven-figure payment. So as you start thinking about what's changed today is a computer, a contract manufacturer, a good innovator, and a good product developer can go to market today, contact a couple of vloggers, get them to try the product, get an influencer to go online to Instagram and said, have you tried this? And what's interesting is that these incubators of innovation are now partnering with the big brands and the big brands are giving them the resources to go incubate these products. So I think we're finding a much easier path to the consumer today than it was 25 years ago when you had to go in and start buying shelf space. So you're talking to a board of directors, Mike, and the senior member of the board says, Mike, what are the challenges and risks in our industries and how do we mitigate against those? How do you answer that question? Well, I think it first always starts with innovation. I think if you're not continuing to drive innovation and focused on personalization and inclusion, you're going to miss the train to the station. You've got to think like a small company today. You've got to think like a small niche. You've got to look at creating huge growth through smaller segments. You got to start thinking custom formulations, uh, tailor-made colors, and companies have even gone as far, and this really blew me away, as using DNA testing, where you could tell a consumer what products are best for their DNA makeup. This is the type of micro-segmentation today that we just didn't see. So if I'm a board and I'm thinking about how to sustain growth, I'm thinking small, not large. I'm thinking, how do I carve out competitive environments that I can tailor individual products to? And how can, how can I make my products much more inclusive? I think the other thing that they've got to focus on is the competitive landscape. Small niche incubators, disruptors, they've always had an impact on the industry. But now they are core to the industry. Big brands have got to start thinking about M&A activity in this market. 
A lot of them have already created SPACs to go out and make acquisitions. And a lot of those have done successfully. But I think that you've got to be much more focused on when you see a, a small emerging brand, take the opportunity to go look at it, take the opportunity to go develop it and take the opportunity to start acquiring these smaller brands as your innovation pipeline. It's pretty interesting. I saw something that I haven't seen in a long time, and that's retailers that are not in the beauty care business starting their own beauty care lines. I mean, Lululemon and H&M both have both just recently launched their own brands, beauty care brands. So that's just more and more validating the strength of this category as a way to enhance your brand lineup and make it more serious to the consumer. So that same board member sitting down at the end of the table says, okay, I hear you on, on innovation. I hear you on the M&A activities. How are you going to help me vet these smaller brands to determine which ones I want to acquire? What's your answer to that? Well, I think it starts first with the consumer. I think you've got to look at their impact that they're having right there with influencers and vloggers and read that data carefully. Data is going to tell you everything. Data is going to tell you whether or not this is a long-term niche or whether or not this is a short-term trial. So I think you've got to read the data. I think the second thing you've got to do is make sure that that product in that company understands three things, clean, sustainable, and inclusive. If it checks the box on those three criteria, you probably have a product that's addressing consumer needs today. And let me just address clean, okay? Because clean, you're going to hear it more and more. Clean beauty, it's everywhere, but it's serious. Clean's pretty simple. It means that a beauty product is safe for people in the planet. The product's got to address both human and environmental health. And it's got to be in both its development, its product claims, and its ingredients. Safe is the key word. I mean, people are looking at that today. Look, we just spent the last two years worried about our health. So the last thing consumers want to do today is apply a product that's not proven to be healthy. So non-toxic, all of these things have turned into the ticket to play the game. You can no longer put elements in your product that consumers first don't understand. And second, that could potentially be harmful. The other thing is, and it's critical, the FDA has taken a very, very active role at looking at these products very closely today. We're going to talk about that shortly, but let's don't minimize the fact that regulatory has taken a big stance in this area, especially in the new COVID world. So that is one thing that I, I want to address now, and that is the regulatory body, generally speaking, is the FDA. There are certain state agencies that can take a look at consumer products from a legal standpoint, we're really not going to get into too much of the FDA here, but I do want to hear, let's hear from you, Mike, on a practical basis. When you start thinking about regulatory aspects of the beauty care industry, what items in general are you thinking about? Sure. You know, as you think about regulatory, I think like most of us, we, we want an economy that is built on non-regulatory, right? We, we, we want to be free to make choices and so forth. But I'm going to tell you, in this industry, it is great for the consumer that there is a highly regulatory environment here. There's no question. 
The consumer has been exposed over the years to many unsafe manufacturing practices. And over the years, look, companies have mislabeled products to make claims that they simply couldn't do. So from a regulatory standpoint, the FDA, while we won't go into too much detail, they have provided great oversight and it has protected brands and it's protected the consumer. So I think what we're seeing is it's certainly increasing its scrutiny over companies and products. And if you think about what I said earlier about the industry becoming highly fragmented, the FDA's task is getting even tougher. They're going to come after companies that don't comply, and they should. They're the consumer protection agency for products that we don't necessarily understand all the ingredients as we read, read the labels. And, you know, food has also gone through that over the years because of the dramatic supply chain issues that we've all heard about, that we've all read about, this become highly politicized. The FDA is being very diligent in watching out the quality protocols from their manufacturers that make these cosmetic products are being followed on the manufacturing floor. And that is critical. Everything from you know, microbial testing to stability to testing of incoming materials, the industry has got to be very diligent in doing what you said you were going to do. Tell you also, it's become pretty telling that now almost 70% of beauty care products globally are being made by contract manufacturing. People that don't actually own the brand. So big watch out is if you own a brand today, you've got to be incredibly diligent at making sure that your contractors, your subcontractors, and candidly, your own manufacturing facilities are in strict compliance with quality standards and FDA regulations because you could be caught very much off guard by FDA coming in and saying, oh, you've got a recall on your product and you didn't even know it was happening. I want to drill into that just real quick, Mike. When you say contract manufacturer, what you're saying is that the owner of the brand is not actually making the product. Instead, you're relying upon a laboratory, a manufacturer that is a, I think the term is white label provider. Is that right? Correct. In some cases, it is a white label provider. In most cases, a contract manufacturer is hired by the brand under its particular ingredients and specifications to go out and source the plastic packaging, to source the outer packaging material, to source the ingredients, and to make all these products according to a set of standards being driven by the brand. But like with any other manufacturing process, sometimes people take shortcuts and sometimes people don't follow the quality standards that they should. And that's where the consumer can suffer. And candidly, ultimately, the brand can suffer by an out of the blue recall that's been implemented by the FDA that at the end of the day, they had no knowledge that it was going to happen to them. So brands have got to be incredibly diligent. And so the, from a legal standpoint, the brand tries to protect itself by drafting good contracts with very specific requirements for the production of their goods. But at the end of the day, I think what you're saying is that there is a level of oversight of those contract manufacturers that has to play into your calculus. And there needs to be a constant watching of that. Otherwise, you run some risk. Absolutely. 
And it's never been more important than today. It's interesting as we start tracking data, regulatory data, just in the first quarter of 2021, the FDA issued 160 warning letters in the cosmetic industry. The previous year, same quarter, it was only 97. So I think a large part of that has been, some of it's been carryover to the fact that they couldn't get into facilities in 2020 because of COVID. But I think a bigger impact has been the fact that there's been an explosion of brands, a lot of new brands. And I think the FDA has taken its scrutiny uh, very serious, rightfully so, and going in and being highly, highly critical in making sure that consumer safety in the world of COVID is first and foremost. So, Mike, we're getting to my favorite part of the podcast. And this is where I get to ask you to describe maybe one or two of the most interesting matters you've ever worked on in this space. So do you got any examples you can share with us? Well, I've got a number of them, but I'll refer to this as my shining moment from the movie, The Shining. So when you start talking about regulatories, you can tell from that description, it was certainly a nightmare but it was it was something that I learned an awful lot of lessons, as did a number of brands. Did it start off at the Overlook Hotel or did it start off somewhere else? It felt like that, but it started out somewhere else. I was engaged to be the uh, CRO and ultimately the interim CEO of a large manufacturer of beauty care brands at two facilities. One was incredibly remarkable, brand new facility, uh, all the bells and whistles. But unfortunately, the FDA had come in and they did not respond appropriately to what's called a 483. And a 483 in its simple context is just nothing more than a review of the facility. And it was a, a report and they received the 483 and didn't respond to it appropriately. And they had cross-contamination of animal health and human health products The FDA obviously takes that very seriously, and their response was not appropriately drafted, and therefore they got a warning letter. A warning letter is no longer a slap in the wrist. The results of not addressing a warning letter appropriately could be seizure, could be the Department of Justice stepping in and actually both fining and prosecuting ownership. So these are are incredibly serious issues when the DOJ steps in. So what actually happened was, as I met with the head of quality, the second day I was there, the head of quality had a lot to say and none of it was good. It was being driven in large part by the fact that, you know, she felt comfortable to come forward and address a number of issues, including the fact that she thought that there was significant, you know, product contamination in some of the products that were coming out of the one, one of the facilities. Long story even longer, we did our investigation, engaged counsel, which I highly recommend to any company that is in a conversation with the FDA to immediately do that, to ensure that you are following all the scripts that are necessary to deal with the FDA and deal with them appropriately, because the FDA has their own counsel also. And what I found was it was absolutely true. There was significant contamination. 
It was to the point where collectively all of the people involved uh, determined that the company needed to be shuttered. What that left was a number of brands that we're all familiar with, with no manufacturing capacity. Not only no manufacturing capacity, but a recall of many of those products and also an inventory hold on any of the products that had been manufactured that can no longer go in the market because of potential problems with that product. So there were water issues, there were stability issues, there were building issues, GMP issues. It was a collective failure of everyone involved. And what that left was a number of brands scrambling to find new production to figure out what do they do with their retains, their test products that were made on each batch, who owned them, who didn't, and then how to get back into the marketplace with credibility. So uh, needless to say, the company went through uh, a bankruptcy process and shut down. But what's interesting is this was all avoidable. It was all avoidable from the front end of ensuring that the quality standards were being followed on the manufacturing floor all the way to everyone involved being very cognizant of their responsibilities, that it was very important for everyone to just follow the rules of the game along the way. But you could see in that particular case, these brands had no idea that this was going on in the background. And all of a sudden they're hit with almost two quarters of their inability to to get revenue because they don't have products on the shelf. So that was the the nightmare beauty care. And it really serves as a great example to beauty care companies about being diligent of their manufacturing processes. And that starts, that starts earlier in that process than, than waiting on the government to send a, a letter asking for more information, right? Without question. I think the most important thing is as you're vetting a contract manufacturing facility, I know this sounds very simple, And it's much more complicated than I'm making it. But at the end of the day, do what you say you're going to do. If you've written a set of quality standards and you're a brand reviewing a facility, walk through the factory holding those quality standards and say, show me. Show me how you're doing this according to what you wrote down. Because at the end of the day, that's what the FDA does. It's that simple. Well, listen, Mike, we're, we're up against our time. You delivered. Absolutely. You are the expert. We are grateful for your time. And thank you for joining us on this episode of Distressed Situations. Keith, thanks a lot. Don't hesitate to get down here and do a little bass fishing on Lake Lanier. Love to have you. I'm ready to go. I'm ready to go. I got my Texas rig worm. Sounds great. Distressed Situations is a Reed Smith production. Our producer is Allie McArdle. For more information about Reed Smith's restructuring and insolvency practice, please email distressedsituations at reedsmith.com. You can find our podcast on Spotify, Apple, Google, Stitcher, reedsmith.com, and on our social media accounts at reedsmithllp on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter. This podcast is provided for educational purposes. It does not constitute legal advice and is not intended to establish an attorney-client relationship, nor is it intended to suggest or establish standards of care applicable to particular lawyers in any given situation. Prior results do not guarantee a similar outcome. 
Any views, opinions, or comments made by any external guest speaker are not to be attributed to Reed Smith LLP or its individual lawyers. All rights reserved.